Bibles to greet you this morning in the name of Jesus. Glad that we can be here and rejoice in Emmanuel, God, God with us. To be able to uh, realize that light that was prophesied there by Isaiah more than 700 years before Christ came is certainly a, a blessing that reaches all the way down to us today. And as we think about Christmas, the Christmas season, let's concentrate on the on the real meaning of it. Appreciate one of the songs Friday evening the young people sang that really the the Christmas story as it relates there to Bethlehem and the streets of Bethlehem and what happened over that time was really only the beginning of Christmas as it were, you know, the work of Christ. And so this morning we certainly rejoice and what God has done for us and continues to do for us. This morning I would like to uh, take your thoughts for an opening scripture to Matthew 13. We'd like to, I'd like to start with this scripture. We may end with it as well. I'd like to, um, for us to think for a while this, this morning together about the meaning of separation in, in the Bible. Uh, it, we call it a doctrine, the doctrine of separation sometimes. Um, I'd like to just explore the meaning of it as it relates to our lives today. And the my thoughts in relation to this uh, subject began with this scripture that I was reading the other uh, a few um, days or weeks ago. Matthew 13 and verse 47. We know that this is one of the parables or that Jesus told in relation to sometimes we refer to them as the kingdom parables. But verse 47, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus saith unto them, Have ye understood all these things? And they say unto him, Yea, Lord. I'm not sure if you ever fish with a net. I've never fished with a net. Remember fishing one time when our family went to, and I was a boy, in the Atlantic. We went, we call it deep sea fishing as a family. That was the first I was out on the ocean like that. Caught some very interesting fish, some bluefish, a lot of sea bass. Typical looking fish. But one time... I forget who it was, pulled up what they call a sea robin. Strange, very strange looking creature. I've never seen the likes. Got snagged, I guess, on the bottom. It just is a reminder, and you see pictures sometimes, like I do, of some of these things they, creatures they find in the depths of the ocean. Even today, after all these centuries, they still discover some species that they never realized existed or it's interesting. Fishing with a net takes in all kinds. This was a parable that those who were listening very clearly understood. In relation to the Sea of Galilee and a very common um, trade, we know that some of the apostles were fishermen, first by trade. And so they were very familiar with this with this picture that Jesus gave of casting the net out into the into the sea from the boat, and you pull it and bring it back around again, and um, and pull it on board and see what you got. And Jesus here is re- using this as an illustration, a parable in relation to the kingdom of heaven. He says the kingdom of heaven is like unto this net that is cast into the sea. And then as they, they pull it, they pull it up to the boat or pull it on to, drew it to shore, it says in verse 48, 
Then the fishermen, they sit down and they start pulling these, these fish out of this net. And of course, the net has enclosed all kinds. Some of these fish are good and they, they have value to them. And others are discarded. They, um, they have very little value. Be true of even fishing today. You understand that some fish definitely have more value than others. Some are tasty to eat, and some you would just rather not not eat. They're thrown away. And Jesus here says that this is how it's going to be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth. And like these fishermen, they shall separate the good from the bad. They're going to separate the wicked from the just. And then, of course, we have the disposal in verse 50. Like the fish being cast away, we have here the wicked cast into the furnace of fire. There should be wailing and gnashing of teeth. You think about separation. The fishermen were separating the fish. And Jesus said here, it's just like the angels are going to do at the end of the world. They're going to separate the righteous and the wicked. Separation. I'd like to think this morning for a little while about the meaning of separation in the Bible. The subject of separation begins in the scriptures with the very nature and character of God. And I know that we think about a subject like this, there's a lot of different angles and practical things that we can look at. We'll look at a few of them probably, but this morning the burden of this message is more to to have the foundation of separation clear, of how it finally involves each of our lives personally and how we live our lives in light of this great principle of separation. It's easy sometimes to get caught up in the, some of the details or practical parts of it, which I'm not saying are not important at all. They are. But to have the foundation for it is so important in relation to the doctrine part of it. Now, you think about this, this the statement I made a few, just a minute ago, that this idea of separation in the Scriptures begins with the very nature and character of God. And you have that here, of course, in, in Matthew 13. But remember that everything is absolutely clear to God in every detail. Everything is absolutely clear to God in every detail. Keep that in the back of your mind when you think about this whole idea of the principle or the doctrine of separation. There is nothing hid from his knowledge. There is nothing hid from his eyes. You know the familiar scripture, Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. Let's say it together. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's a verse we ought to all know by memory very well. Because it talks about, in relation to God, the Word of God, which is referring to Christ Himself, is alive. That's what the word quick there means. It's alive. There's a living vibrancy. It's powerful. It's, it's so sharp. As a sword, like a two-edged sword, that it even has the ability to divide between soul and spirit. Now, you've never seen a soul and you've never seen a spirit. That's in the spirit world. And we don't always know the difference between what is soul and spirit. We talk about that sometimes with the doctrine of man. You know, what is, what is the part of us is soul and spirit. But the word of God, as a sword, can divide right down through that. And know exactly what we're made of and, and, and what we, what is a part of us in this soul and spirit. 
and of the joints and the marrow. We can picture that. Is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the word of God, God, Jesus Christ, in his power, understands our thoughts, what we think. Psalm 139 says, before we think them. And he understands the intentions of our heart. Now, the next verse, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In other words, we're just wide open. I mean, he knows what we th- what we're going to think in the next second or two. He knows what we're thinking. Every one of us are thinking right now. All things are open. There's just there's just he's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, why I'm referring to this in relation to the doctrine of separation is because that God in his majesty in his greatness in his all-knowing uh, power therefore understands and sees right through us in relation to our even intention we we do not need to tell god what our intention was in any situation this was a thought that kind of struck me last evening in studying for this message Sometimes, you know, we may be tempted to tell God, well, I didn't intend to do that. I didn't intend to say that. Why do we think we need to tell God what our intentions are or were? God already knows that. This scripture says that he, he understands, you know, the, uh, the intents, the intent of our heart. He knows our intention before we've ever opened our mouth. Or moved a muscle to do anything. He knows what our intentions are. We don't need to inform God of those. Now, keep this in the background. This thought in relation to the all-knowing, all the, the omnipresence of God, omniscience of God, in relation to now understanding the principle of separation in the scriptures. Alright, let's turn now to Genesis 1. This is really where the doctrine or the principle of separation begins. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. Let there be light. That's the first place in the scriptures where we have a principle of separation. Verse 4, and God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. God divided the darkness and the light. There was a separation. And that, the whole thought there in the concept of the dividing of light and darkness, we can say is, is the, is foundational for all that God has done ever since then. And we're going to notice some of those. Now, I believe that light existed before this account that we call the creation story. I believe that light existed before in the presence of God. But but the light in this particular sphere of of creating the earth, it was not present at that time until God said, let there be light. Because we know that God is a God of light. And so God already had light. He didn't create light in that sense. He said, let there be light in this realm of earth's creation. And then we have the day and the night. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And so we have the evening and the morning were the first day. That is a separation that continues today. We have daylight and we have night. Now, the reality 
And that's, as I said, the reality of this separation of light and darkness exists throughout human existence. We understand that. But there's also the spiritual connotation in relation to light and darkness, which is the most important aspect of this whole idea of the separation of light and darkness. The scriptures refer to the children of light and the children of darkness. And so there's that, not only the physical um, uh, light and darkness aspect that we have today, in the, in the natural sense, but also in the spiritual sense, there's also the light and darkness spiritually. And that's why the scripture refers to, like I just said, children of light and children of darkness. That's a divide. It's a separation. John 3 and verse 19, here Jesus said, and this is the condemnation that light is come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light. Men love darkness rather than light. Let's turn to John chapter 1, Gospel of John, chapter 1. Familiar passage, but it just confirms what we're, we're talking about in relation to Christ and light. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, which is Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Coming back to this whole idea of light here again. In Him was life, in other words, the eternal life of God in Him, and that eternal life of God in him was the light of men. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Or the darkness was not able to overcome it. There was no darkness. There's no darkness in this world that can overcome the light of Christ. Light, the light of Christ, as God created, is more powerful than the darkness. When the light is turned on, darkness leaves. And um, when the light is turned off, darkness comes. And so here, the, there's a light that shineth in darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, his name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light. Notice the capital letter there. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world, and so on. So we have there the picture of Jesus Christ coming as the spiritual light of the world. Compare that to Genesis 1 there, where we read in the, in the creation story there of God dividing the light from the darkness, and now Christ coming in the, in his in his uh, his birth, coming into the world as the God-man, as light. And light is shining now in the darkness of the world. We um, looked at that in our Sunday school lesson a little bit. It's there in, in Isaiah. You know, that prophecy. You know, those that walked in darkness, Isaiah said, I've seen a great light. You know, and, and so the light that the shepherds saw there and the, and the glories of the announcement in heaven there, the angelic host, the the star of the east that we sing about, the 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 you know the, the Bethlehem experience there, the 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 light picture there, all is pointing to that not only the natural light that they saw with their eyes, but the spiritual light that Jesus Christ came as the light of the world. He came to bear witness to His Father, and that was a light that was going to light every man that cometh into the world. None of us here this morning, no one in the world, I believe, with, with that is accountable, a normal person, there will be some flicker of light in their soul to draw them to the eternal. It will vary with culture. It will vary with opportunity to know the truth. But there is something. And if you've studied anything in relation to anthropology or some of those things, 
you know, even some of the, you could say some of the, the tribes of the earth in spiritual, in some of the most difficult spiritual darkness have some, some idea of a deity or some idea of, uh, of a higher being that at least they should appease or something. You know, there's, there's something within the heart of man that, that is drawn to light. Drawn to light. Jesus said here, it's the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. That flicker of light, if followed, will always lead them to Jesus Christ. And so there is that light that we have. So, in John, I referred to John 3.19, where it says that this light has come into the world, and this brings condemnation, because we don't like the light shining on us. Have you ever sat in the, in the service or you were convicted in your heart about something that is wrong in your soul? That you do not have a, a right relationship with God and you feel uncomfortable? I've watched people squirm, literally squirm in their chairs when the gospel is preached because the light is shining upon their soul and they feel condemned. They're very uncomfortable. That's the power of the light. Jesus said it's going to bring condemnation. Wherever that light shines, the gospel message of truth, if people are not right with God, they're going to be uncomfortable. And maybe that doesn't always show on the outside, but I'm sure I, I know how it feels on the inside because I've been there. When I was a rebel, when I was against God, when I refused to respond to what I knew better, I felt that condemnation because of the light that was shined into my soul. And so Jesus is saying here that this light has come into the world and it brings condemnation because it, it holds the standard of righteousness of God. And it says that men are going to love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. And Jesus also referred to the Pharisees at one time as saying, you don't, even, you don't want to come to the light lest your deeds are, will, will be reproved. And so they, knowing they should have responded there was better knowledge, and they refused that light. They said no, and they went about to kill him. And they got that desperate to avoid the light of truth upon their hearts that they said, we're going to kill this man. He doesn't have to, we don't have to hear his preaching anymore. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. It's interesting, and this is right across human nature, why are so many crimes committed at night? Why do the police, why do police departments across, across the world basically know that they, they have to have more manpower on in, in the evening and after dark? Why? Early morning hours, not so much. During the day, not so much. But when it gets dark outside, and in the early hours of the night, that's when most crimes are committed. That's when police forces know they have to have more manpower on, on patrol. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Somehow there's that perception in fallen humanity that after dark, I'm sort of guarded, I'm sort of shielded. You know, maybe, do you think God can't see in the dark? But that's, how man responds. It's how man reacts. Because they, they, they want the, the darkness to hide them, to, to cover them. Well, there's also the separation throughout time and other principles. We're looking at the light primarily this morning. This principle of light versus darkness, day versus night. And they affected that in human history. But there are other principles of separation. We're not going to go into these in depth this morning. They're interesting in themselves. If you want a subject to study, your personal Bible study, you can take some of these ideas and, and use them. There's the principle of separation, Deuteronomy 14. The Old Testament there with Israel, the clean and the unclean. You know, there was, you know, the, the animals that they were allowed to eat and the animals that were unclean, they were not allowed to eat or even to touch them. 
And even today, whether it's, you know, swine or or dogs or, you know, some of those unclean creatures are still considered unclean by by practicing Jews. The clean and the unclean. And and if you read, you know, through the Old Testament accounts there, where all those laws that related to the clean and the unclean, it was there was just chapters full of those instructions given that you can eat this, but don't eat this. You can touch this, but don't touch that, and and, and so on, and all those all those rules and the washings and the ceremonial things and how to cleanse something that became unclean because it touched something, um, or something that was, was clean because it touched something that was unclean. Uh, to touch a dead body, you had to go outside the camp because that was considered unclean. And all those things related to to God impressing upon the uh, Israel the the whole principle of separation, separation from sin versus the holiness of God. And yes, they had to meticulously, meticulously follow all these rules, and they got tired of them. And they sometimes they didn't follow them, and then God had to judge them. But it was to impress upon their minds that God is a God of separation and he doesn't tolerate sin. He doesn't tolerate uncleanness in the human heart. And so we have that, that principle. And again, that would be an inter- that's an interesting study in itself. You know, uh, just one thought further on that is that, um, if, if something touched something else, say, so suppose something that was clean was touched by something that was unclean. Did the unclean make the clean unclean? Or did the clean make the unclean clean? Which, which way was it? Let me illustrate it this way. Um, I've never worked in a, in a operating room. My friends, years gone by that did that, worked in an operating, operating room. But you understand the whole idea of being sterile. In an operating room. So, say, um, um, a operating tool, scissors, or a, a scalpel in the operating room slips out of the doctor's hand and falls onto the floor. Does the clean scalpel, it was sterile, right? It was in his gloved hand. When it hits the floor, does that make the floor clean? Or does the floor make the scalpel dirty, contaminated? You see the principle? And therefore, God you know, clearly showed Israel, when something like that happens, you have to cleanse that. You, It's the unclean that makes the clean dirty, contaminated, corrupted. And you have to cleanse that. And so it is in relation to sin, in relation to the human heart. And that's again, the, the as I said before, the what God was impressing upon their minds, this whole idea of separation and, 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 and how that works. And we're going to come back to that in a little different way a little later. There was also another principle of, of separation that God taught Israel in the Old Testament was the ribbon of blue that was to be worn on the hem of their garments. Numbers 15 There, verses 38 and 41, I'll just read that. Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue, and it shall be unto you for a fringe, that ye may look upon it, and remember all the commandments of the Lord, and do them, and that ye seek not after your own heart, and your own eyes, after which ye used to go a-whoring, that ye may remember and do all my commandments, and be holy unto your God. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. And so Israel was instructed to have the tassel or the ribbon of blue on, on the, around the border of their garments. And that was a, a standard. That was a, that was a requirement for, for Israel to do that. Now, you think about that, and the reason they were to do it was that they, whenever they would look upon it, it was a reminder to them of the commandments that God had, had given to them that they were to keep. 
In other words, to help them remember who they were as the people of God. And that is interesting because that commandment would have carried all the way down to Christ. And the fulfillment then, of course, was in the suffering and death of Christ and the fulfillment in the resurrection. But that was that was a standard that God required of them in the way they dressed, the way they made their, their garments, that they were to do that. God has always, throughout the scriptures, has always been concerned in relation to his people dressing in a way that meets his holy standard and his requirement for righteousness. Now, there's also another part of this is the righteous and the unrighteous. We have that separation. 1 Corinthians 6 and verses 9 and 10. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Principle of separation. Again, the holiness of God, the righteous and the unrighteous. He said, don't be deceived. These kind of people that practice this kind of sin aren't, a part, aren't, going, to be, aren't going to be a part of the kingdom of God. They're not, they're not going to inherit that. There is also another principle in relation to separation. It's taught in the scriptures, and that is in relation to the unequal, unequal yoke. And we have these familiar scriptures. Let's just turn to them, and uh, I'll read them. 2 Corinthians 6. Familiar passage again, but ties right in here with this whole thought in relation to uh, separation. Second Corinthians 6, verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? There again, you see that, light and darkness. The comparison, separation. You know, so we're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We're, and what, because what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what hath, and what communion hath light with darkness? Verse 15, and what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I, sh- and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So there, there we have this, this thought in relation to separation. And first of all, we have the unequal yoke. Now, I would like to say, first of all, in relation to this whole passage, that sometimes it is misunderstood. And the, the, the context, I, don't, I believe here, is not necessarily speaking that we're to have no, no contact or a separation between the, the Christian and the world around us. We know that Jesus said in John 17 there, he said, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. We are in the world, and we will rub shoulders with those who are infidels, who, who do not know the, the light. And I don't believe that it's, it is saying here that we are to somehow you know, be uh, antisocial and not, not um, uh, communicate and, and not share in the society of the, or the community that we live in. I don't believe that that's, the, that that's the, the direct meaning here. But I'd like to think about, you know, in relation to this the unequal yoke, which could be involving some sort of any kind of contract or relationship where there's going to be, where there's not shared values. And so it could be whether it's in, you know, some types of business relationships or, I think one of the primary ones is in relation to marriage. You know, in relation to Christian marriage versus the uh, marriage of with an unbeliever. The scripture says, how can two walk together except they be agreed? And so that would be an application in relation to this scripture and separation. 
How can a Christian marry an, an, an unbeliever? How, how, how can that work? You know, where it is true that sometimes in a relationship later, one becomes a Christian, maybe one chooses not to. And we understand that. And God can, can, um, can bless that relationship, even though there may be difficulties with it. But, but in, in the relationship where to actually choose as a Christian to marry an unbeliever, that would be, that would be wrong. It'd be an unequal yoke. And there's times that sometimes I've heard, you know, people say, well, you know, I, I like this person, you know, and I think I can help them. Maybe I can bring them to Christ, you know, if we, we would get married. Well, it doesn't work. Remember, what usually happens is the clean versus the unclean. You know, remember? Which contaminates the other? Does the clean clean the unclean or, or vice versa? Usually that ends ends badly. And and so that's why the scripture says don't be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever in that kind of a relationship where there's that kind of an effect. Now, <clears throat> we also notice here what fellowship hath Christ with Belial. Ephesians 5 verse 11 says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Again, this isn't meaning antisocial. This isn't meaning that we don't have a relationship with our neighbors and people like that in relation to being neighborly, and, and, and we're not, that's not what this scripture means. But to say fellowship, it's fellows in the same ship, if you want to interpret it literally. And so there is that, that aspect in which that if I find my social preferences to be with those who are not of the Christian faith, if I find my social preferences to be those who have not made a commitment to Christ and are, are living in sin, if that's the type of people I prefer and enjoy fellowshiping with versus the people of God, then I'm putting myself in a, in a dangerous situation. It says here, to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but it says rather reprove them, which I believe what this means is that we can be a witness. We can, we are to have that relationship. We can witness. And that puts the whole idea of fellowship in the context of a witnessing situation. And, um, and so in, in thinking of that, I, I think that that's where in relation to the, um, the, the principle of separation. There's a neighbor man. We've got to know this couple. Um, one of our neighbors. Um, so, several neighbors that we've got to be good friends with. But one claims to be an atheist. He doesn't believe in God at all. So that makes for interesting conversations sometimes. The other one would claim some sort of Christianity, I believe. Um, we don't see each other every week, even, off and on. And um, a while back, he said to me, you just got to come over and have a beer with me. That's well. That would be a problem, because I, I don't drink. Wow, you know, he said, come on. He said, just a glass of wine, then. I said, no. I said, I don't mind visiting with you, but I, no, not on that level. Well, what, what do you drink anyway? I said, well, mostly water. Some other things that are soft, but not nothing hard. Huh. Well, he said, I, I make my own. I said, well, fine. But, um, so, I'm just using that as an illustration now. You see, we're friends. We talk a lot of different things. But there's a line. I don't, I'm not going to enter into that, that level of fellowship with him. See, there's a line. And, um, because I want to be in a position to witness to him. And, Reprove him, maybe. Reprove the works of darkness. Do that in a kind way. Insert those things that help him to think about life. 
I'm just using that as an illustration. I, in relation to the, the un, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. I'm not going to get down into the ditch with him in his sin in order to help him. But at the same time, we can have a, a, a social relationship. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. And so there is that aspect where to constantly, deliberately expose myself and find my social uh, fulfillment and satisfaction with, with someone that is actually out to influence me wrong would be a problem. I'd like to now close our thoughts with just thinking about the final eternal separations. The doctrine of separation, the principles of separation run throughout the scriptures. We started in Genesis 1, the separation of light and darkness. It's important for us to remember that the small separations of time will become the final separations of eternity. Yes, there was a difference between Lazarus there laying at the gate of the rich man. There was a difference. One lived in luxury, one lived in need. But even that difference in time doesn't really compare to the differences of eternity for them. The Bible says that when Lazarus died, the angels carried him into Abraham's bosom. He carried him to be with Abraham. The Bible says when the rich man died, he opened his eyes in hell. The small separations of time will become the vast separations of eternity. You remember there when the rich man lifted up his eyes in torment, and he was able to see Lazarus there in the intermediate state there, at least see Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. You remember how he cried there, Luke 16, 26, or 24, actually. He cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. You think about that, the whole doctrine, principle of separation. It started with God in the creation of the world, separating light from darkness. The light separated from darkness continues to this day. And the spiritual implication of that is, in relation to choices that we make, that in eternity there was that great gulf that is fixed, that's that final separation. God alone will render the verdict on that great on the, in that great separation on Judgment Day. Matthew twenty five thirty two and 33 says, And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them. See there again, separate them, one from the other, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Think also about the... Um, Another separation in eternity, in eternity regarding light and darkness. We have a revelation showing the beautiful picture of the city of light. Sometimes we sing about the city of light. And it says there that there's no need of the sun to give light. But it says that the glory of God is the, is the light of the city. Glowing transcendent in its beauty and color, lit by the glory of God himself. No sun needed. Compare that to the separation that, again, we see there 
involving the lake of fire and what the Bible calls outer darkness. I've been in some caves already, and it was and they turned off the lights. I remember being deep in the Carlsbad Caverns years ago as a boy, and our family was there. I'm not sure how far how many how far below the surface we were, but a long ways. You know, they told everybody, just stand still, don't move. We're going to turn off the lights for a little bit. It lets you feel what real darkness is. And um, I don't know what the Bible means when it says outer darkness. But I know that was really dark. It's like a darkness that is described sometimes as a darkness that you could almost feel. You see that contrast, that separation. A city of light versus outer darkness. And so this morning, what we need to remember about separation today is that every single person, every accountable person in the world, in the eyes of God, are either saved or lost. There's always that separation. It's light versus darkness. We're saved or we're lost. Here in time for us as people, as even as Christians, we don't always know where everyone is in their spiritual journey, in their spiritual walk. We encourage and we help, and we're not, we don't pass judgment on people without knowing details of their lives. But to God, it's all clear. See, it's all clear. And that's why at the end of the uh, end of the age, where we started from there, Matthew 13, the angels will be able to sit down there at that net. Right hand, left hand. Because to God, it's all clear. That line of separation between light and darkness, the people of God and the people of the devil, that's clear. You know, this is not determined by how we feel or think about ourselves. I believe that we can know whether God's Forgiveness is with us. But, you know, this is determined by what God sees as the state of our soul. God's going to have that final word. And so this morning, as we think about this, the principles of separation, let's continue to allow this doctrine, these principles to guide us in our lives. That there, every day of our lives, we stand before God, either saved or lost. Man, we should sing an invitation song this morning. In case there's someone here that feels the call of God, feels that condemnation because light is shining on our hearts. Let's sing several verses of Just As I Am. Father, we come.
come before you this morning to thank you that you're a God of light. And we thank you, Father, that that light is so strong, so powerful, that it can overcome any darkness in the world, any darkness in our souls. And we pray this morning, Father, that you would continue to help us to keep our faces toward the light. We know the world around us is very dark. And there is wickedness abounding on every side. And as you have told us, the last days are going to be perilous days. There's going to be days when those that there, those who um, turn against you get worse and worse. And Father, you've told us there's going to be a return to the days of Sodom. And Father, you told us that there's going to be many that lose out and turn their back on the faith because they've allowed themselves to be deceived and to turn their faces away from the light and into the darkness. Father, we think of Judas this morning in that story where he went out into the darkness from the presence of Christ. Father, we pray that no one here this morning would leave this place and turn their face from the light to the darkness. But it may every one of us, in humility and, and a contrite spirit, surrender our hearts to you. And so, Father, bless each of us. You know the needs of our hearts. And we just pray, Father, that we would continue to allow your light to shine in our hearts, even when it is uncomfortable, even when it makes us feel condemned, that we might turn to you in repentance and allow you to to bring that light and redeem us from any sin or iniquity within. And so, Father, we plead your mercy and grace upon each one. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.